and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week, I'm in Bristol to catch up with one of the world's leading wildlife and documentary cameramen. If you've watched Sir David Attenborough's landmark series like Blue Planet, Planet Earth and Frozen Planet, then you've seen a lot of Doug Allen's magnificent work. Orcas attacking grey whales off California, polar bears trying to catch belugas in a frozen hole in Arctic Canada, and killer whales washing seals off ice floes in Antarctica, all on-screen firsts. Doug has won eight Emmys and, we think at the last count, five BAFTAs, and praise in his profession doesn't come higher than from Sir David himself, who says cameramen don't come much more special than Doug. I've had the extraordinary luck of working with Doug over many years. There's just no one else who knows these frozen worlds as he does. Doug has travelled the globe, including making more than 60 trips to the polar regions, patiently waiting to capture magnificent moments with some of the Earth's most spectacular creatures, immersing himself in nature and with indigenous tribes, filming underwater, from the air and on the ground. And he's made powerful documentaries about other subjects, including Mount Everest, volcanoes and the Inuit people, whose lives are wholly influenced by their ancestors' culture and surviving the cold tundra climate they live in. Doug, it is fantastic. I know you're blushing now at the mention of Sir David and BAFTAs and Emmys, but I've loved our exchanges on email. You've sent me so much information, film clips. What an amazing life you've had so far. Yeah, it has been remarkable. It's been a good time to be alive and a good time to be a camera person. I think I slipped into it almost by accident, really. It was a a chance meeting with David Attenborough in the Antarctic in 1981, which when I had just finished two winters in the Antarctic, he and his small film crew turned up on our base. They needed someone to take them around the island, take them to the best places, so to speak, and that ended up with what I did for a couple of days. And working with them over those couple of days, I just thought, this is where I'd like to be. I'd like to be that camera person working in a team like that. It's funny because I've worked with quite a few camera teams since then, obviously, and I'll tell you, some of the teams I've worked with, if I'd met them the first time, I would have been left with a very different impression. (laughs) But David and and the sound man, cameraman, producer, they were just the loveliest bunch of people. They were having such a lot of fun, but clearly professional. And I think they were off to Galapagos after the Antarctic. So it was just remarkably romantic. The job obviously involved all that I had been enjoying up till then. And three years later, I, I was ready to go into it full time, so to speak. So it was luck and it was a whole lot of things coming together. What a lovely chance meeting and who'd have thought the chance meeting with somebody who's become such a legend Mm. and done so much for the natural world, which we'll talk about later. What were you actually filming when you joined David and his team? Was that when you were doing the Emperor Penguins? No, that was after. What happened was I got into diving when I was at school and that led me to a degree in marine biology where I decided I didn't want to be a scientist, but I wanted to act as an assistant role for underwater marine biologists. And that led me to various expeditions, went to the Red Sea, dived in Germany, ran a dive school. And then I applied to the British Antarctic Survey because I read in a magazine, they employed a diver down in the Antarctic. So I applied for the job and actually failed the interview. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) I failed the interview. And I remember I was working at this dive school on one morning, two weeks after the interview, 
Two letters arrived, one from the British Antarctic Survey saying, sorry, no, we're giving the job to someone else. And a second from a group of biologists who, whom I'd met the year before working in the Red Sea. And they said, we've got another contract, could you come out and, and join us? So I went out to the Red Sea, was actually in the Red Sea finishing that contract when an unexpected vacancy came up in the Antarctic. So I got a telex this time from the British Antarctic Survey in the Red Sea saying, could I go to the Antarctic? So I decided that I would go from the Red Sea to the Antarctic. And that was my first contract. Really enjoyed myself, came back to the UK, decided I would buy some better camera equipment, went down south and then was supposed to go for one winter, ended up being two winters because the ship couldn't get in to get seven of us out for the second winter. Bit of a long story. Anyway, got went down for one, got stuck for two, and it was in the summer following the second winter. That was when I met David. Wow. So it was a whole set of weird, weird circumstances. He was filming for Living Planet, which was the second of his big series. <clears throat> he had finished Life on Earth, and now he was doing Living Planet. But back in those days, the Antarctic was a very difficult place to get to, and him and his crew had basically managed to get a month on HMS Endurance, this naval ship. And they were down with Endurance just filming whatever they could on the various landings that Endurance was doing. And Endurance were coming to our base because they wanted to do a new survey of the main the main harbour, so to speak. And that gave the team two days on Signy Air Base, and that was where I met them. And then it was after that that I got another chance to go to the Antarctic, this time to be a base commander down at a very different place, down at a, a research station called Halley. And Halley, you'd normally never go there as a biologist because they don't do biology, they do ionospherics. But 12 miles from Halley base, there was an emperor penguin colony. And I knew we could visit the emperor penguin colony through the winter. So I bought myself a 16mm camera, contacted a producer at the BBC before I went down. And he said, well, if you can get pictures of them through the winter, then bring it to me and we'll see what we can do. And that was really where it where it started. They are clever, the emperor penguins, aren't oh, they? Yeah, well, they? What's it like being among them, Doug, and, and trying to tell the story of how they survive in such brutal temperatures? And well, yeah, the emperors are the big penguins and they're the only ones that breed through the winter. They have to breed through the winter because being big penguins, they just take longer to, to grow up longer to incubate, etc. So the most moving moment for me with the Emps was that having been going down periodically through the winter, through the darkness, because Ali is somewhere where the sun stays below the horizon for 100 days through the middle of winter. So you've been going down there, you've been seeing them, and all you've ever heard is the calls of the adults calling to each other. But when you go down in August and you're walking around, you stop, there's no wind. But it's still cold, it's still minus 30. But just occasionally you'll hear this high-pitched, really high-pitched, cheeping noise. And that's the chicks calling out. You look around and you still may not see them because they'll be stand on their parents' feet for warmth and they stay tucked in between their legs in what they call the brood pouch, which is this featherless patch of skin that um, birds have between their legs where they, they tuck the egg in there and they keep it warm. And that's where the chicks hang around for the first few days of their birth. But then if you hone in on a cheap, you just stand there quietly and watch, then you might see the little head will come out and 
book out round about. And that, that's just magic because it's like, I mean, it's been a brutal winter that they've seen themselves through. And it's almost like this is the start of the new life that's going to come through. And then to see those same checks five months later, four months later, fully fledged, standing up on the ice edge, ready to go to sea, you're just reminded again of this big cycle of natural history that's going on all the time. I'd imagine it's really humbling watching them and filming them like you did. I'm just wondering if you remember what your first impressions were of the Antarctic, because you've gone on to make more than 60 trips to the polar regions. Mm. They're obviously areas that you have thrived in and you love, but but they're very different to Fife in Scotland. What was your <laughs> first impression when you got there to this snowy, icy wilderness? I went into the Antarctic at the deep end. That was the other thing. Normally, if you go to the Antarctic with the British Antarctic Survey, your contract starts in the middle of the UK summer. Um, you get to know the people that you're going to be going down with. They have a big conference where they tell you all about it. Then you travel down slowly on the ship. Your ship would leave UK in about October, would sail down to the Antarctic. And in that time, you would meet people. You'd get the rough edges knocked off some of them. And you'd finally get to your base where you would have maybe a month of swap over with whoever's job you were taking over. Mine was nothing like that the first time. Why well, am I not surprised? I was, <laughs> I, was, I was the last minute replacement for the diver on Sydney. So quite literally, I got on the ship in Punta Arena at the bottom of Chile. Three days later, we were at Sydney. We arrived in the afternoon. The ship left the next morning and we didn't see another ship for nine months. So I almost knew. I didn't know very much about the Antarctic in a way. And it was the, the end of summer, so most of the penguins had left. Uh, there wasn't much snowfall, it was very much the autumn. The water was cold, but the diving was kind of similar to UK. It's only when the ice comes that things really transformed. Once the sea ice comes, once the sea freezes, then things become different. You can get around more easily, get the snow machines out. And then, of course, you've got some animals through the winter, but then it's really the following summer, August, September, when the Weddell seals, they are the first proper Antarctic animals to come back. Sydney was a remarkable place for wildlife. You know, imagine a small island about two miles long, two miles wide, roughly triangular, 100,000 pairs of breeding birds on that island, four or 500 Weddell seals, so many more other birds, seals, etc. And And the diving was great because... I was helping to support the marine biology programs that were going on at that time. And it was just a perfect, as I say, I've been lucky growing up when I did. You know, growing up through the 60s was a remarkable decade. You know, we were pushing into space like we'd never done. We were also pushing underwater like we had never done. And by the end of the 60s, biologists were talking about how the big Earth systems work. I don't think it's just going into space. And those first Apollo 7, Apollo 8, I think it was, that first left the, the planet and could look back and see the whole globe. It wasn't just that, but there was this massive ecological movement and awareness of the Earth brewing through the 60s. And I was kind of riding the crest of that wave. And, and working underwater was a really exciting place to be because we were looking at whole systems, energy flow through the sea as opposed to how an individual animal perhaps worked, which had maybe been the emphasis in biology up till then. So to find myself down in this continent, science was just expanding down there. I can't believe the more I think about it, the more I think how 
jammy I was, <laughs> to be where I was when I was, and to be able to take advantage of what was happening. When I started filming, very little filming done in the polls, very little. And I went in there and, and, and managed to pick off some of the, the cream. It was almost like having Africa to myself with all these great stories, but no one had been there really to do them properly. But when you then get friends with people like Alistair Fothergill, who went on to very great things as a producer, when he raises money for a series in the in the Antarctic, then it's just a springboard onto more fantastic things. You've filmed <laughs> so many spectacular and beautiful creatures, but I think I've heard you say in an interview that probably the polar bears are your favourite. Yeah, Tell yeah, me yeah. a bit about the polar bears no, and the magic bears. of what it's like, Doug, to be close to a, a polar bear. Well, polar bears are you know, they're big, sexy, charismatic animals, but the edge on them is that they will eat you. And, and they will. When you're out on the ice, you're in polar bear habitat and they can be very dangerous. And the closer they are before you realise they're there, the more dangerous they are. So you want to keep an eye round about because the safest way, the best way to stay safe from a polar bear is to see it from a long way away because they can see as well as we can, they can hear as well as we can, they can smell a whole lot better. And if polar bear a mile downwind of you will smell you, and if it decides that you are interesting enough to possibly approach like they would a seal, which demands a lot of knock stalking, then they'll do all that stalking. They'll keep out of sight of you. They'll move from behind one piece of ice to the next. And if you're not careful, suddenly they're there about 50 metres away and you think, how the hell did you get here? And then it's a different situation. But they are just, they're, they're just amazing animals. I still remember the first time that I really got a good view of one. I was out with an Inuit, we were out in March, pretty cold up in the Arctic, and we'd be looking for bears for two or three days, going out with snow machines, and we really hadn't seen any at all. About half past four or five in the afternoon, so the sun was beginning to get low, and we'd just stopped for a last brew-up. So he's sorting out the cooker at the back of the sledge, and I'm looking around through the binoculars. Suddenly this bear came out, almost between me and the sun, came out from behind an iceberg, and it was quite a big male, and it was maybe a couple hundred yards away. It was quite a comfortable distance. Anyway, it came out and it stood there, and you could see the light was coming through the hairs on the back of its neck, and you could see its breath coming out as, as you know, steam. Wow. It stood there and it looked around and it looked at us for a little bit, and then it just ambled off. I've never seen an animal that seemed so absolutely at home in its environment. And we've been out for you know, the last couple of days. We had seen nothing living at all. No birds, no seals on top of the ice. Nothing at that time of year. And here was this animal, obviously big, obviously fat, not apparently stressed at all. Looked at us with a kind of, well, it felt like through the, through the binoculars, a kind of imperiousness. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to bother with him. And he just turned around and ambled away over the snow. And, you know, it was such a relaxed encounter, but at the same time, this overall impression of he was an animal that was supremely adapted. And I knew in that instant why it was such a charismatic animal. It was the first time I'd seen it. I just thought there and then, boy, it would, you know, it'd be great to get the chance to see it doing things in its own life, to see how it manages in this so hostile environment. Because all I'm thinking about at that point is, 
hurry up and get this tea brewed and we can get back to get back <laughs> to the tent. When you were at the poles, Doug, how hostile is the environment for you? Because sometimes temperatures are, you mentioned minus mm. 30, they're, they're lower than that, aren't they? Yeah, they can Often. Get. How do you it's, cope with the, the cold and, and well, the conditions? I was lucky that I learned a lot of, I wouldn't call them survival techniques, but I learned what kind of clothes to wear when I worked for bus. And I learned my own limits, which is quite important. We could all go to the Arctic and we might all go out for the day and we might complain about cold feet. Well, I know how cold my feet can feel without them actually getting frostbitten, whereas you might not. And so I knew my own limits and I knew that after I get a certain amount of coldness, you often get a second heat, you know, to go through them. So your hands will get quite cold and then they begin to rewarm for a while. And then when they get cold the second time, that's when you've, you've got to be perhaps careful. I learned underwater about how cold you could get but still function. So there is a saying where, as far as the poles are concerned, where you say any fool can be uncomfortable. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's true to some extent. An awful lot has to do with your clothing. But then that clothing, you need to go there often personally so that you know what clothing you need depending on what you're doing. You need very different clothing if you're walking somewhere carrying heavy equipment versus standing still waiting for an animal to do something. So you learn the clothing to wear, you learn your own limits, you learn to look after each other. Sometimes it can be hard to tell whether you've got incipient frostbite on your cheekbones or your nose, whereas if you glance across to your partner, you'll see those telltale white specks. So you might say, you've, you know, cover your face up for a minute. I haven't had serious frostbite anywhere. I've had frost nip, which is the first stage of frostbite. I've had that on my fingers now and again. But touch wood, I haven't suffered serious. It's the wind that really adds to the cold. We could all go out tomorrow and stand in our t-shirts at minus 25 if there's no wind. But the minute a few knots gets up, a few knots of wind, then that begins to get cold. And once you're down at, you know, 20, 20 knots, let's say, 20 knots at minus 25 is, it takes it down to, into the, the minus 50s equivalent. But it's the wind that's a killer. So it's important to ask before you go and shoot what sort of temperatures do you expect so that you can partly know what clothes to take yourself, but also maybe you have to prepare the equipment because some equipment you may have to winterize the lens, for example, you know, which means stripping down the lens, replacing all the lubricants with something much lighter. Because if you take that normal lens into cold temperatures, then literally the grease will just begin to freeze up. Focus might not work or the zoom might not work. I used to have certainly a friendly um, cold chiller company up in Avonmouth. They had a, a blast freezer which could take things down to minus 30, 35. So if I had a lens that someone wanted me to use, I would take it up to them and leave it with them for a few hours and then go back and see how it was behaving. And it might need winterizing. Gosh, you don't think about all that kind of things. And also accommodation. I would imagine there's a lot of the time when <laughs> you're not heading back to some snuggly hotel. No. I mean, I guess sometimes you stayed in igloos and built them with the people you're yeah, filming yeah, with. Yeah. And yeah. Well, igloos are normally fairly temporary issues. Although in the olden days, you know, it could make a difference between life and death. And anyway, knowing how fast they could build an igloo if they were caught out. Sometimes we put them up temporary places. We were making a film round about an area of broken ice in Hudson's Bay and there were several areas around this big broken hole in the ice that we wanted to spend a few hours every day. So we built an igloo, one or two of them, just to make it more comfortable to hang out. 
You might be intense. Uh, the ultimate really is if you're working in Svalbard in particular, quite often you can get use of a cabin and you can go f to and from that. And the cabins are great because you can keep them warm through the day. With a tent, if there's just two of you out there and you leave a tent at minus 30 and go out for the day, everything is frozen when you come back. A time to thaw everything out and to make the place as warm as you can. A cabin you can leave out with a, a drip feed heater in the corner and it will stay nice and warm. And of course, you don't have the, the dangers to much. Polar bears, if you're inside a cabin, um, you might, if you've got snow machines parked outside, then we would erect a, a perimeter fence, as we called it, out from the, maybe 15 metres out from the cabin. You'd put four stakes in the ground at the four corners and then stretch a wire between them. And on the end of the wire, there's an explosive flare. So if the bear decides to investigate your cabin when you're inside it at night, for example, it will trip the wire the bang will go off. That will either wake you up and hopefully chase the bear away as well. Because if you don't put that up, then the bears, they do have a habit sometimes of chew the seat off the snow machine or they'll chew the handlebars or they'll go up on top and wreck the cowling. That's so it's better more... than them chewing your leg, dog. Well, it's better than chewing your leg, yeah. <laughs> but on the hand, when you're in a cabin, they're not going to no, you know, attack you in the cabin, on. but they could seriously affect the rest of the shoot if you went out and found your snow machine had no seat on it the next morning. And your lucky charm is a beautiful, tiny, carved yeah, polar yeah, bear, isn't it? Where did you get that from? That was given to me. Yeah, that was given to me by my wife at the time. It's actually, it's over there in the mantelpiece. I'll bring it over. Um, it's made out of mammoth uh, ivory tusk. Yeah, it came over from, uh, she bought it in Alaska and the, the ivory tusk I'd either been dug up in Alaska or might have been dug up in Siberia and, and brought across, but it's a lovely little little model. It's funny, I've got a few sculptures of animals and things, but I like to have always seen the animal before I buy the sculpture because the sculpture should embody something of the spirit of the animal, something of the look of it, something of the about to move, what have you. So that, it's a great wee polar bear, that, because it just looks so perfect. And yeah, I took to carrying it around with me taking on all the shoots and I'd put it on the windowsill of the cabins that we were living in and probably would look out and, I don't know, <laughs> it brought the bears in. As viewers of programmes, you know, like Planet Earth and Blue Planet, we're all captivated, obviously, by the places and, mm. the, and the wildlife you've brought into our living rooms. But as a journalist, for me, I'm fascinated by the stories behind how you managed to get such spectacular footage. And to be fair, I think viewers have got more interested in that too. What are the most extreme stories that you've covered or the extreme lengths you've gone to to wait for that magical moment where, I don't know, a whale tail comes out or, you know, some of those really mm. glorious shots, Doug? What camera people really like, what producers really like, is to get something that no one has seen before and to preferably cover it in quite a lot of detail. So we were lucky with the original Blue Planet um, killer whales attacking the grey whales in Monterey Bay. That was an extremely long shot. The two researchers went over to a big marine mammal conference and there there was, um, they met a scientist there and they were talking and she said, you know, I know the killer whales hunt grey whales in Monterey Bay because I work there um, every year and I've seen killer whales and I've seen dead whales. So they are being killed, but no one's seen it happening. She said, but I think if you came out there and gave it dedicated a month of time, 
on my boat with my network of fishermen contacts and things, we might be able to get it. So Blue Planet was, you know, looking for new things. So they invested money in that. And in the first week, we saw three attacks. It was amazing. Paint and a we, picture of what that's like, Doug, when you're there and you see that happening in front of you or through your lens. <laughs> Ellen, you look as though I should be sorry for something. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, but no, I, no, I, I, I said, it must be extraordinary. I can't imagine what it feels like as was, a cameraman to see was, that unfold. In well, front there, was, of you. there was two camera people, myself and Tom Fitz. We'd been put onto a pod of killer wheels. We'd found them and we were just cruising along beside them. Suddenly they started moving much more purposefully. And we couldn't actually keep up with them, but we thought they must be have heard something going somewhere. And when we did catch up with them, maybe a few minutes later, 10 minutes later or so, they were beginning to attack this humpback with its calf. And it was pretty impressive. I mean, it took them about two hours to separate the female from the calf and then to finally kill the actual calf itself with a combination of... They would ride up on its back and push it down. So basically they were drowning the calf in the end. And I remember being emotionally exhausted at the end of it. And that was partly because of what you were watching, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that we were on a rock and rolling boat and were hand-holding the cameras. And Tom and I are, are taking turns in filming because we were about to watch the film as well. We only had a finite amount of film. But anyway, we were both filming it and then finally, you know, they managed to pushed the calf down and everything went quiet. So I remember looking at him and I was thinking, whoa, that was amazing, wasn't it? And he said, yeah, it was great. And then we had to turn to each other, of course, and say, well, I hope the rushes come out okay. The rushes are the exposed film. Because back in those days, we're filming on film. Of course. So we had no idea of what we'd actually filmed. You couldn't <laughs> just play it back in no, the camera. No, you can just play it back, no, no. In fact, I think in those days, there was concern about film being X-rayed. So you didn't send any film back. You just took it all back, hand-carried it all back to UK. So we knew we weren't going to see it for a while. But we did think, wow, two attacks. I think it was a three attacks in the first week. This is great. So we were there for a month. We never saw another attack. <laughs> we went back next year and we never saw another attack. The reason we wanted to get them to go back and see more was mostly because the attacks that we saw happened not far from shore in not very good underwater visibility. And we knew that they also some attacks happened further out. And what we were hoping to get was an attack further out in good visibility where we might be able to get some underwater shots of the, what was going on under there, but we never got it. So that was a case where if we'd known what we were going to do, we could have cut our costs, saved seven weeks of boat hire and touring around in Monterey Bay, you know, because that was all we ever got. But nature doesn't work like no, that, no, does nature it? Doesn't um, work and you could be waiting that was, for well, that. that was a success. On the other hand, when I tried to film the snow leopard for planet Earth, that was almost nothing. I was out for two trips of about four weeks each, five weeks each. We just weren't getting the sight of them. I only actually, I think, had a, a snow leopard in my sights for about one hour of one day. And it was asleep 50 minutes of that <laughs> The best stuff by far came from uh, Mark Smith, who in the meantime had found another location in Pakistan, which was better. So he went out there and he got all the stuff of the pair of them and got the chase along the cliff, etc. So that was all that was all Mark's stuff. I think my, my total was a little short of a, a snow leopard walking along a cliff. So sometimes you don't have to get it that way. Other times you look and look and look and look. And the longest one in that case was 
Doug Anderson and I, I think it was 2010, we filmed The Killer Whales, Washing the Seals Off the Icefields, which is a fantastic piece of behaviour. I mean, it's very it's spectacular visually. We got the top side of it, we got the underwater side, and we had two scientists with us on board who were killer whale experts who were adding all kinds of information while we were watching it. And that was fantastic. I first heard about that behaviour. We shot it in 2010. I heard about that in 1976. And I've been kind of looking for it ever since. Not consistently, but it was always in the back of my mind. Maybe we'll, we'll get this. We got it in 76, of all things, because when I was in the Antarctic back then, we were quite friendly over the radio with different bases. And we were quite friendly with an Argentinian base down there. We were so friendly, we used to play international darts tournaments with them over the winter, which demands a lot of trust because you have no idea what the other person's actually scoring. You know, <laughs> just assume that that hundred they got was for real. And whoever won, you would arrange for a bottle of beer or something to get sent down to that base. And in the middle of the summer, they said that they had a pack of killer whales working in a channel near them and someone saw them creating waves to wash a seal off an ice floe. Now I remember thinking, well, that's pretty impressive behaviour. Talk about that. But then when, you know, I had the chance to go down to the on other trips, I would keep an eye out for it a bit. I mean, it was tough to see a killer whale back in then. There's no doubt that the number of whales generally has actually increased. Anyway, when we did um, Life in the Freezer, we were kind of looking for that. And we might have seen something of an attack because typically we were in really thick fog one day. And by thick, I mean 50 metre visibility. And we heard all this blowing and splashing and we tried to follow where it was happening in the fog, but it was difficult. And it was also fairly uncharted. So the skipper wasn't all that keen to go charging into the mist. <laughs> and then it went quiet and we thought, oh, what the hell? And then about half an hour later, we found a big strip of blubber floating on the water. So I think that somewhere within audio distance of us, but unseen, there had been a killer whale attack on a big whale. We never actually dedicated boat time to go for it until we finally, until this series called Life came along. And Life asked me to see if I could get it. And basically we didn't get it with Life, but we did prove on Life that you could follow killer whales with the boat and they didn't seem to be too bothered by it. So when Frozen Planet came along and they said, do you think we should try it again? I said, yes, but we've got to modify it slightly. We've got to go a different time of year when there's a bit more ice. And we've got to have two camera people, properly stabilised cameras, one or two other things. Anyway, we did it, took a lot on board and came up lucky. Because we did come up lucky, because what we know since about those killer wheels is that one thing that was interesting came out of the work that the scientists were doing while we were filming the wave washing, they were putting little satellite tags onto the killer wheels, attaching them with a crossbow. Little satellite tags, we put them, attach them with the, on the bottom of the dorsal fin. That dorsal fin on a killer wheel is practically pure cartilage. So what I found from one of those satellite tags, because normally they only lasted about a couple of weeks and they were programmed to give positions. What they did find is this one particular pod, which was hunting seals. They would spend a month hunting in the Antarctic they then swam 2,000 miles north and spent the next month off the coast of Brazil. The water's warmer, so they would burn through the layer of fat that they had accumulated in the Antarctic. They'd burn through it a bit you know, slower. And then they swam all the way back and started hunting again. 
So you could be looking for that pod of killer whales that does the wave washing. It might be 2,000 miles away. That's extraordinary. <laughs> I'm looking through some of your Planet Earth highlights. You had some intimate encounters with whales in Tonga. I think they were humpbacks, oh, yeah, weren't humpback. they? What happened with the humpbacks? Well, they were, I mean, that was another great shoot. We went out to, to Tonga to, to get the humpback whales with their young calves. And we worked with this amazing Tongan boatman called Lolly, who had worked around whales a lot. And there was just really myself... Sue, my wife at the time, and Lolly, just the three of us in the boat. And very soon, you know, Lolly, I mean, I knew quite a lot about whales and, and how to approach them and to take your time. And Lolly just emphasised that. And he would spot a whale and then we'd, we'd, we'd just potter around it. And, and you know from the way the whale's behaving whether it's slowly it might accept you. On the other hand, it might just not be in the mood and it'll head off. And we had a few occasions where we found this one particular female who was just very, very friendly, eventually. And you'd go in the water and just quietly swim over towards her and she would go up in what they call a spy hop. She'd stick her nose up out of the, out of the air. Now, the reason they do that is because when a whale is swimming horizontally, where its eyes are, it can see well underneath it, but it can't see forward. So if it wants to see what's in front of it, it goes up on its nose and that brings its eyes directly looking forward. So I would approach this whale and it would quite often spy up and I would think, it's me again, don't worry, it's only me. And then she would flop down and relax with her calf. And we just spent lots of time in the water with that whale. And you can recognise individual whales, humpbacks, from the pattern underneath their flukes. When they lift their tail, dive and they show you the underside of their flukes. They've got a very unique pattern of black and white underneath their tails. And thousands of humpbacks have been identified from their tail flukes. And so we knew this particular female. And she wasn't always in the same bay. But when she was, then you knew that you were going to get a good experience. And she would just seem to enjoy coming close. She would come in and lie for a while, literally eye to eye from a metre away. And then she might go to sleep with her calf and she would go down and float down below and the calf would come up to the top. I mean, they are remarkably sentient animals. And I think humpback whales, and, and you can see the same with different species too, the grey whales in Baja California. There's a few of them that particularly seem to like human company. They will come up to the boats and they'll stick their heads up and let people rub them and all the rest of it. Well, I never rubbed a humpback whale. You just hands off, so to speak. But there's no doubt that this, you know, there are whales in Tonga and this one in particular seemed to enjoy. Are you humbled when you're underwater and when you're with creatures like whales and just the size of them as well? It must be really special, I would mm, imagine. Well, the thing with underwater is that you there's a rule of thumb that you might be able to see an animal dimly, say, at 60 metres away. It's no use filming it until it's 20 because it's just too fuzzy in, in distance. Underwater is all about wide angles from fairly close. So there's no way you can hide from an animal underwater. If you can see the animal, the animal can see you. So how you get on with it, but the same thing applies to topside. How you behave in the water or how you behave on land when you're looking for animals has an awful lot to do with, I think, your success about how close they might hang around. The thing is, if, if a whale is sufficiently interested in you or 
sufficiently not bothered by you. That's when you'll get close. That's when you'll, when it's relaxed, that's when you'll start to get the behaviour with all things being equal. But the thing to remember with animals coming up to you or when you approach polar bear or what have you is that these animals have the option. If they don't like it, they'll leave. A bird will fly away, a polar bear will walk away. Right? So the fact that that animal is choosing to spend time in your company, it's taking the option of staying where it is and hopefully relaxing and doing its behaviour, that's a big privilege for you. That's a big pat on the back for you because you've managed to behave in a way that gains that animal's trust and lets you get the footage that you want. Now, on the top side, you can always put a blind up. You, know, you put a little hide and that's what lets you get close to birds, for example. You couldn't put a hide up in the middle of the Arctic and wait for a polar bear to come because <laughs> the polar bear would think, What's that sitting over there? I'm just going to investigate it, you know. So it's all about how you drive the snow machine, how you ultimately perhaps walk towards the bear. From the moment you get in the water, it's how you behave in the water because a lot of animals will know, particularly whales, dolphins, toothed whales, they know all about you as soon as you go in the water. They'll have dipped you with their sonar. They'll tell if you, they'll probably know if you're a male or a female, if you're excited or laid back. If you're swimming towards them, paddling furiously, or if you're just kind of seaweed-like floating towards them. And all these sort of things, I think, come into play to let you get close to the animal and gain its confidence. But then if you're talking about filming them, big budgets give you the time to do that, to get the best of the footage. And also there's this understanding that from experienced producers that you're not always going to be successful. And as long as you're just out there you're, and you're there and you're doing your best, you can't do anything else. And if you're after something tough, then you are going to be disappointed sometimes. I would imagine all that knowledge has grown from all the different expeditions and trips mm. that you've made and increases. But have you ever had any really hairy moments, Doug, where you've thought, oh my goodness, or you've been scared <laughs> or frightened and wondered whether you'll actually get out <laughs> of this fix or not? Well, sometimes it can be hairy from the point of view of the animals, and I have drifted away on, on broken sea ice. Have you? Uh, yeah, more times than is good for you, really. I think I've done it four times, something like that. The first time was doing the polar bear special. That was a fairly big ice floe. And when the weather settled down, it was big enough to put a, to bring a twin otter down on it. And we got off that one, okay. Second one was a bit smaller ice floe, really. And that, again, was, that was a helicopter rescue. Oh yeah, it was the third time that was a helicopter rescue and the fourth time was we got ourselves back because we were out with someone in it. If you're travelling with experienced people, then usually they know where the danger is going to fall and you end up in the right place on the ice so you don't drift away. And then there's the danger from animals. The classic one was getting grabbed by a walrus. Walrus usually feed on clams on the seabed, but occasionally they'll decide to hunt a seal. And so what they do is they go looking for sleeping seals on the surface and the walrus will swim around on the surface looking for the little bobbing head of the seal. And then they'll dive down underneath the seal, look up, and you can see it silhouetted against the pale sky. Up they come, they grab the seal and take it down into depths. And that was basically what a walrus did to me. I was out snorkelling on the ice. I'd just finished taking some pictures of diving birds. And I was looking around for where might be my next subject and something grabbed me around the thighs, and I swung round and I could see the head of a walrus on, on this side. And I sort of pushed hard with the camera 
and onto its head and it let go and swam away a couple of metres, disappeared. But if that walrus had decided to hang on and take me down into the depths, then who knows? Not when they kill the seals either by squeezing them really tightly and just crushing them to death. Or sometimes if they take the seal high on the body, then the walrus will bend over with its head. It'll put its lips against the head of the seal and they're capable of sucking the seal's brains out. Oh, that's not the kind of hug you want on those no, chips. Really. Uh, it was a polar bear. We'd split up, Jason and I, and we were looking for new dens. And when you're looking for where a polar bear has just come out of the den, you basically have to drive around different valleys every day looking for a freshly made hole in the snow. So I was looking at Jason was somewhere else, and, and I looked, and I thought, that's a hole up there. So I started walking, left the snow machine, and started walking towards the hole. And I was maybe about 100 yards from the snow machine, just with my binoculars in my neck. And I became aware of, a, out to my left, and slightly behind me, there was a polar bear walking along, just do, 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 do. And, and I thought, this is not good. And of course, we carried flare guns and things, but I left mine back at the snow machine. So I just slowly did a big loop around to my right and started walking back towards. And the bear was behind me by, you know, a few tens of metres. And I remembered another thing. So as I was walking back, I took one of my gloves out of my pocket. It was quite mild to one glove out of my pocket. And I just dropped it on the snow and kept on walking. And that was what stopped it. The bear, bear basically stopped, sniffed the glove and then turned around and headed off. And I was left okay. Wow. And of course, it's not always wildlife where there's moments of high drama. You also film for Discovery's Everest Extreme. Oh, yeah, and was... in your notes, there was brackets, several moments of high drama. Yeah, there was. That was what you call an obdoc. So it's filmed as it happened. It was remarkable, really. The expedition was climbing from the Tibetan side. The advantage with the Tibetan side is that from advanced base camp, you're virtually in line of sight all the way up to the summit. So we had the Sherpas and the key climbers all wired up with GoPros and also sound so that we could record live all that was going on down below. And I was based higher up. I was filming the expedition leader, a guy called Russell Bryce. These are all climbers who've paid upwards of about $60,000 to get the chance to go up there. So Russell was based at a lower point on the mountain for the final ascents. And on that day when they actually go for the top, Russell knows how much oxygen they start with. He knows certain points on the route where they should get to by a certain time, etc. And if they don't, if they're getting through too much oxygen or they haven't got to their spot, he has to tell them, you're going to have to turn around because otherwise you're going to die. You're going to run out of hose fire up or run out of time. And it's pretty hard to turn people around when they're only 1,500 feet off the summit. And there was a pair who wouldn't be turned around. And Russell didn't know what to do about them. And eventually some of our group who'd been up and were coming down, they managed to persuade them to turn around and, and try again. But that was the expedition where very famously on the way up, there's a point on the way up the route called Green Boots. And Green Boots is a body that's been there for many years and most of the body is covered by snow except for his boots. So you can always see Green Boots. So Green Boots is, is like a waypoint on the way up. And just above Green Boots, there's a little kind of cave in the rock. And on the way up, the climbers in our group said, there's a body at the back of this cave. And Russell said, well, you know, if it's dead, then just carry on. Anyway, on the way down, 
He discovered he wasn't dead. He was moving. Oh, my goodness. But Russell, at that point, had to make the call. You can't rescue him. He's been up there for at least 24 to 36 hours. We don't have the oxygen, the people, the strength. You're on your way down. If you try to get that, do anything for that guy, then there'll be more fatalities than we did. So they had to leave him. That's brutal, isn't it? It's pretty brutal. It was especially brutal about three weeks later because there was a quite an experienced mountaineer who ended up going down with cerebral edema higher up. And he was abandoned by his group. It is was a much smaller group. But the other experienced climbers said you leave him behind because they just the margins for safety are just non-existent up there. So they decided to leave him. He was discovered 24 hours later, kind of stumbling down the mountain lower. So they'd given him up for dead. He managed to survive. So that reignited this whole concern. Could the guy in the cave have been closer to being alive? So I made for dramatic television. Everest is a weird place to be. It's one of the most strangest. It's such a weight of history when you're up there. And um, you just know that people are going to die on that mountain. You meet them at base camp, you meet them at ABC, and the next thing, they disappear. You know, sometimes nobody knows where. There's no shortage of dramatic stories in your life, Doug, mm. and many more to come, I'm sure. In fact, you've got half a century of stories to tell. <laughs> so we'll leave it there for part one, if that's okay, and come back next week for a little bit more. I brought you, well, I brought you a litre of Baileys, actually, so maybe we should stop for a little tipple. But is that all right if we split this in no, two? No, Not many people get split into two, but Sir Jackie Stewart was one of them, so you're in good company. You've been listening to part one of our two-part special with award-winning cameraman Doug Allen, the man behind some of the most spectacular footage on programmes like Blue Planet, Planet Earth, Frozen Earth, and many more incredible films and documentaries. Look out for next week's episode for more adventures and a look at climate change. Really looking forward to hearing Doug's experiences and how those poles have changed over the years he's been going and also talk about the wider crisis that we find ourselves in as a planet. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. Thanks for your company. Thanks for your company.